let me begin uh, these introductions by first by introducing myself, although most of you know me. I'm David Thorburn, professor of literature and director of the MIT Communications Forum. Uh, and I'd like to welcome you to uh, our first forum of the year, the first in a series of three forums uh, this semester uh, about uh, the, the, the fate of newspapers in a, in, a, in a digital world. Now I'd like briefly to introduce our speakers. I will introduce them in the order in which they will speak, and then I will be the timekeeper and warn them when they come to the end of their time. Our first speaker is Dan Gilmore, the founder and director of the Center for Citizen Media and the author of we the Media, Grassroots Journalism, by the People, for the People. Uh, Gilmore has extensive experience as a reporter and as a newspaper columnist. Uh, he worked for uh, uh, the San Jose Mercury News, the Detroit Free Press, and other newspapers. To Dan's right, uh, Ellen Foley is the editor of the Wisconsin State Journal. Uh, I've heard her uh, uh, speaking about the fate of newspapers on NPR and other venues, uh, and is a, uh, has, has become a kind of spokesman for the for the for, for the for the working newspaper person. Uh, she has held other positions, including a position as managing editor of the Philadelphia Daily News, assistant managing editor for features at the Kansas City Star, and she worked in, in a series of jobs for the Minneapolis Star Tribune. Our final speaker at the end is uh, the Boston Globe columnist Alex Beam, uh, who has been at the Globe for how long, Alex? 200 years? Sometimes in his emails to me, he signs himself the dinosaur. Uh, I don't know if that's totally true, but I, li I, I like his dinosauric tones in his column. Uh, and he's also the author of a very interesting uh, uh, a book about a, uh, a, a significant institution in the Boston-Cambridge area, a book entitled Gratefully Insane, The Rise and Fall of America's Premier Mental Hospital. Do you know the name of it? <laughs> Gilmore says it's the Boston Globe. What is it? What is it, Alex? <laughs> Some people say an MIT. No, wrong. Good guess, though. Assistant professor here, if you must know. So but, it's McLean and Belmont. It's McLean. It's McLean Hospital. Without without further comment from me, Dan Gilmore. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to just uh, stand here. How do I switch the um, the video? Ah, it happens by magic. So. So thank you for inviting me. It's, uh, it, it really is an honor to come here. I, uh, I get out here now once a month to Cambridge and uh, have not spent enough time here at MIT and need to rectify that. Uh, my, my role in today's session is to basically talk a bit about the, the rise of citizen media as uh, I see it and as a uh, what I hope will be part of a vibrant and expanding and more diverse ecosystem of journalism in which uh, I pray that newspapers do survive. It would be tragic if that were not to be the case. Uh, I, I can't control the imploding business model but I, I think what newspapers do is so important and would really be bad for all of us if, there were, uh, if they were to disappear or shrink substantially more than they have. 
So I'm going to quickly go through some uh, slides and, and things and, and try not to uh, bore anyone with it. Just some data points, um, things that are part of this. I'll come back to uh, most of these. Can we have sound? And what this is about fundamentally is the notion of democratized media, not in the sense of uh, voting, although there is an element we'll touch on later uh, about voting, but in the sense of participation, of wide participation, and that the democratization that uh, I'm thinking about is in the sense that it's open to many people uh, in the democratized tools of production. Uh, this computer, for example, as most of you who use these know, comes with really dynamite uh, video editing software just built in. There's a recording studio built in here. Uh, all kinds of things, and then add the web, and you have powerful access. I, that middle word, distribution, is... I think a bit of a misnomer in this area because it's not so much about distributing media as about the, the ability to get access to lots of different media. Now, our friends at the cable and phone companies, uh, the new duopoly, are trying to change that. They're trying to wrest control of the Internet from us, and uh, we may talk to you on that later, but I hope they don't succeed. But fundamentally, we're talking about a consumer being producer and vice versa, and that that's a fairly fundamental change. And that it's about a read-write web, where instead of the web of the first few years, when it was kind of a read-only, you had to have fancy tools or know how to code certain stuff, it's now kind of easy to write on the web, and I use write in the broadest sense. And it's not just blogs, it's a bunch of different things going on. By the way, do you know the Pentagon does podcasts now? When I heard that, I thought, oh, it's over. <laughs> and then video, you know, with, again, this is... Uh, okay, it's October 6th. Actually, Amanda Cogden no longer does Rocket Boom, but that's uh, a production done in New York or was done in New York every day for not much money and with wide distribution, 300,000 downloads a day at last count. And in the journalism area, I want to just go through what how I'm seeing this happen, which is that journalism has been a lecture. Uh, we told you what the news was, you bought it or you didn't end. And that it's moving into something like a conversation, uh, and this is from the perspective of the traditional journalist, if, if, if we do it right, where we uh, build upon things. And, of course, the first rule of a conversation uh, is listen. Now, I don't think that's something, based on my 24 plus years in professional journalism that professional journalists do very well, at least beyond the Rolodex of sources that we have. I think we've tended to be not great at listening to our audience. And something I found out almost immediately after getting to uh, Silicon Valley to write about technology in the mid-90s was that I learned instantly my readers knew more than I did, which is bound to be the case in that circumstance. And that 
uh, even then, about 94, they all had email and were not at all shy about telling me how much more they knew than I did. And I realized it was not a threat, but a great opportunity to do better journalism. And that that has really informed everything I've done since. That, that's a very small concept. And the, in the democratization of access, the audience now has many choices. That's a screenshot I took when I was teaching in Hong Kong in the fall of 2000. There was that election, and it was a Wednesday morning there, Tuesday night in Hong Kong. I'm sorry, Wednesday morning in Hong Kong, uh, Tuesday night here. And I got a national public radio stream, audio stream, and flipping around from website to website, drilling in on state national races, realizing suddenly I was getting a better news report than anybody who was watching television inside the United States because I was able to put together a report, roll my own, into something that was simply better. And that is evolving into something that folks around here have called the Daily Me. Um, and uh, we'll come back to that. And it's, it's through various ways of setting up our things. And we're blogging now with our, our democratized media. We're showing stuff, explaining stuff, uploading stuff, annotating and arguing and telling each other. And that this is about neighbors and community. Some new rules in this thing. One of the more important ones is it's getting harder to keep secrets uh, at some level. Not entirely, of course, as the more of this goes on, the more government tries to restrict access and the more companies try to use the law to restrict access. But uh, information does have a way of uh, coming around the edge. Uh, it's been said, as many of you have heard, the, the Internet interprets censorship as damage and routes around it. Well, that's sort of true. And speaking of true, we could spend the rest of the day on this particular slide, and uh, it's, it's just a huge issue, and we're going to have to deal with it. For the newsmakers, the institutions and people that we journalists write about and broadcast about, a lot of new rules, something new is happening to them. They're also going to have to participate in a conversation, I believe. And they have the access to the same tools to do a better job with their own message. Uh, and I hope they will do that for being more transparent as opposed to more deceptive. It's not something I am sure which way it's going to go yet. And traditional media are not stupid. They're full of really smart people. And now they're finally, I think, getting scared enough to do a lot of really interesting stuff. Uh, the news and record in uh, Greensboro, South, uh, North Carolina, has declared it wants to be the town square for the community. I love that idea. Enabling that conversation that the community should have with itself about its future and its present and to really understand who it is by getting everyone involved. It's a wonderful idea. Uh, Le Monde offers blogs to its readers in France and actually puts better ones up on the website and, and is paying some of them now. The better the access is for everybody. Uh, there's the hyper-local stuff that uh, the Northwest Voice in uh, Bakersfield, California is doing, which is proving to be quite successful. And, if, of course, if newspapers don't, others will, and media organizations in general. This is a site in Brattleboro, Vermont, that uh, not always but often beats the local paper on things that matter. The local paper is owned by a particularly 
uh, for, not, not how should, I'm, I'll just not say. They're not owned by a company that cares a lot about journalism from my perspective. And of course, the threat that journalists should be thinking most about is not a journalistic threat. It's about money. It's about the advertising revenues that are being taken away at a rapid rate by people like eBay, which if you think about it, is the world's largest classified advertising operation. Looks like an auction, but it's advertising. And I, I would have put Craigslist up there, which is also doing it, but Craig is one of my funders. <laughs> He's also a friend. And Craig is quite concerned about what's happening uh, and is working to really think about how to promote good journalism. Things, other things that I think are fascinating, like the Oh My News. Uh, it's in, in uh, Seoul, South Korea. They have 40,000, at last count, citizen reporters around Korea who have signed up to post things there. They have professional editors who vet stuff that comes in, and they work with the citizen reporters. It's a hybrid. It's making money. It's a wonderful experiment. They just opened a, uh, Oh My News in Japan. Uh, we'll see how well that works, and they're going to do something fairly uh, ambitious here in the U.S., and I can't wait to see how that works. Organizations are asking the public sort of what they know uh, about things. The BBC has been pretty prominent in, in this in part. This is something they did before the Iraq War. They asked people for photos and did a, just a wonderful photo essay from it. And, and, of course, every time some natural disaster comes around um, in the U.S., the media now ask everybody to send stuff in. But even, even if we didn't ask them, they'll do it themselves. And this is a photo of the building next to the Australian embassy in Jakarta, right after the embassy was bombed a couple of years ago. Someone getting with, it, with a camera walking by had this thing up on Flickr before the traditional media were even close to getting it reported themselves. And of course, this is the canonical image from the London bombings of July last year. This is the one we will all remember. This, this terrible uh, quality, you know, no production values to speak of, camera phone photo from inside the underground taken by a guy who I, who would never have thought of himself as a journalist before, but from my perspective committed what I'm calling now an act of random journalism. And that Lots of people will do that in the future, and we should, we should recognize that. Now, they've done it before. This is the most, this camera took the most famous citizen media photos or images, if you will, probably in history, and that, of course, is the Kennedy assassination. Now, but what I want you to think about is a changed world. That in Dealey Plaza in Dallas in 1963, there was one guy with that camera shooting the scene. Now imagine today or in a few years where it's not one person in Dealey Plaza, but a thousand, all getting images of high quality, and they're not just holding video cameras in their hands and audio equipment, but it's all connected to digital networks. That's a big difference. We would know that 
a lot differently if that were the case. For one thing, we'd know if there was anyone on that grassy knoll or not. And we'd know whether this was a bunch of people or just one guy up in the book depository. And imagine again for if the uh, on those planes on September 11th, people had been sending not had not been just calling other people with their mobile phones, but had been sending videos from inside those planes. That's the kind of world we're going into in terms of media. Uh, I don't know exactly what that means, except that it's different, and we have to understand it. The Web 2.0 notion of mashing together things from various sites and services uh, is creating interesting things like the micro-publishing model, mashups. Uh, this is a wonderful site called ChicagoCrime.org, where he combined government crime data with Google Maps, and you can do all kinds of cool stuff with this to figure out things, including if you draw, you can draw the route you walk from the uh, office to the subway and map the crime along there. So if you see a whole bunch of uh, muggings along the route you normally walk, well, you might want to check another route. Uh, this kind of thing is going on in many different ways in many different capacities. Another form of mashup, of course, is to take different kinds of video, put them together, mash them, and uh, many of you know this uh, particular mashup, but it's my favorite bit of commentary in about the last couple of years. I'm not addressing the copyright issue here, but as a mashup goes, that is, that is commentary of a very high order. And the kind of thing people much younger than me think is kind of a natural way to do things. You take stuff here and that stuff there and put it together and it's something new. And people native to this kind of media will do it in ways that none of us my age could figure out until we see it. So I, I can't wait to see how that goes. Of course, we have too much information. There's, in the old engineering phrase, there's a lot more noise than signal out there by a big, big margin. And we have to find ways of surfacing and promoting the, the signal above the noise if we care about journalism um, or even good entertainment. Well, the entertainment gets surfaced seems to be more easily than the other. So uh, Technorati is one of the sites that does nothing but index weblogs. Uh, and does a pretty good job. Okay. 
and then other things for trends and the thing. Uh, this is something I think is important. We're moving from the daily me to the daily us, and I think it's an important thing to think about how we'll do it. Uh, because voting popularity is not sufficient. We need to add reputation. Popularity is important, but it's not enough. And if you add reputation and then uh, authenticity of some measurement, you get something quite interesting, and we're not there yet. We're a long way away. Community voting, community uh, ratings, citizen activism caused through journalism sites. This is a BBC site, very important. Of course, there's a world of critics, the famous CBS case. I'm, being, I'm hurrying now. And uh, the after CBS finally admitted it had done in, inadequate due diligence on its journalism, someone at CBS complained about those people in pajamas. Uh, you know, and I, they also became known as the Pajama Hadeen. Something we need, of course, in this is uh, better media literacy in the future. We have to help people understand that not everything out there is true, like this photograph, which is just a mashup of a kind of ugly kind from right after 9-11. And uh, yet there are still lots of people who think this is authentic. Principles that bloggers and others, if they're going to do journalism, should think about. Standard principles, the one at the end, transparency, is not a common one in uh, traditional or new journalism, more so in the new. And that we can somehow start thinking about in, in our daily lives, we are all, in a sense, reporters about things we care about, and we should extend that as a media literacy thing. And that criticism becomes part of this, and I think in a good way, it's daunting for the journalists. Uh, and I was bombarded as a professional journalist with people who told me how wrong I was, and I realized over time that we, like the readers, as a, in plural, the big mass of readers, we're not so crazy about the reader, singular, when that reader is beating us up. And I hope that traditional journalists will actually start bringing this media literacy as into the mission. I think it would be useful for everyone if we did that. And finally, this is who I am, what I'm doing. This is the Center for Citizen Media. It's affiliated with uh, the Berkman Center over at Harvard Law and the Graduate School of Journalism at Berkeley, uh, and got a bunch of projects going, and uh, I'm really easy to find. And I do answer my email, uh, though I don't promise I will answer it instantly. But I will stop there, and we'll move on. Thank you. I've got a, there we go. Um, I can't tell you how thrilled I am to be sitting here between two of the greats of the journalism world, um, neither of whom uh, I know uh, personally but have read lots about. Um, I am an editor in the middle of the country, which some of you um, refer to as flyover land. And um, I'm here to tell you that in the middle of the country, um, we are... Um, uh, very much involved in what you are um, learning today about new media and we are extremely nimble and we are extremely um, interested in what our readers have to say. If I disagree with Dan, I guess the um, 
the one thing I would disagree with, and I think you just lost my lap, yeah, um, is um, that um, out in the Midwest, uh, we have a culture of uh, what we call the good neighbor. And this comes from our agricultural roots in which um, uh, the way to survive is to be a good neighbor. Uh, so uh, if your neighbor uh, has an issue, you help him or her because if you get stuck in the ditch um, during the winter time, you're going to be dead unless he pulls you out. So that good neighbor philosophy has transformed journalism and um, sorry. Um, I think it may have uh, propelled us ahead of, thank, thank you, Dan, um, of some of the other um, uh, newspapers that you have heard of. Um, I'm not so much concerned about the future of newspapers. I'm concerned about the future of journalism. And what annoys me um, quite a bit is this tone that we hear from people who do not work in newsrooms, that we don't care about the readers, we aren't talking to the readers, um, we aren't listening to the readers. Um, I get 800 email a day. Uh, about 200 of them are spam. But a good 50 of them are from readers. I answer each one of them. On Sunday, as I was heading off to a social event, uh, a, a man named Mr. Appleton wrote me, and he didn't get his paper at 7.45. And we told him he'd get it at, uh, in two hours, and it was now um, 9.46, and where was his paper? Um, I called the circulation department. They called the dispatcher. The dispatcher told them wh how far they were from Mr. Appleton's house. And uh, we got him his paper, and he wrote me a thank you note today. So that's the kind of tender, loving care that we give uh, readers. And that's the kind of attitude that we have about them. Um, when I was a cub reporter many, many years ago, I'm 54 years old now, uh, there was a theory that we were the smart people and that we needed to tell the readers what they needed. That game has changed for quite a long time. And we now know that as journalists, as gatekeepers of information, it's our role to tell uh, readers, to share with readers information that not only um, is what we think they need, but also what they want. And that has been the story of journalism as I have known it for the past 30 years. So be careful of this this tone that you hear from people who do not work uh, with readers, who do not work in newsrooms, and particularly people who do not work in cultures like mine, the good neighbor culture, which I think is increasingly becoming um, uh, prevalent throughout our country because we have to do it together or we won't do it at all. What I see uh, occurring in uh, this transitionary time of journalism is a tension that I would really love to hear about from the audience. And that is a tension between what I see as a slow, thoughtful technology, and it is a technology of the newspaper, and the fast, convenient technology of the internet. I have a foot in each of these worlds. And at my newspaper, where I have been the editor for two years, we are rapidly uh, ramping up our internet journalism um, in a way that is quite robust. Um, but I see this tension, and it is also tension that uh, um, straddles a fault line between the older generation, the baby boomers, of which I belong to, a very powerful demographic group that um, uh, can be threatening to the younger generation, 
um, who prefer the Internet and who get a lot of information from the Internet. Um, so I'd love to hear your thoughts about that because I think that as we move through this transition, that is the key um, paradox, perhaps, that we're going to have to resolve. We do have an issue, and Dan referred to it in his presentation, of um, limited resources in our business. Um, and we are a business. Um, we, uh, I have not spent 30 years um, in uh, my professional life um, not getting paid. Um, if I would tell the bursar at the University of Wisconsin where my two children attend that uh, we sure like to send them that $20,000, but, you know, I'm working for the people, uh, my kids wouldn't be able to go to college. So I'm a businesswoman, and I have um, great optimism that we're going to figure out this new business model that is indeed, as Dan says, um, uh, melting away, shall we say. I think that there are some very, very interesting um, new models out there. One of them is uh, uh, a group called jellyfish.com, uh, which those of you who are in uh, the business disciplines and, and the, um, who are interested in economic issues should look at. It's a very interesting group that the Wall Street Journal has referred to as the new Google. But the reality of uh, my life um, is that I have to work within a budget and I have to be um, very parsimonious with my resources. Yet in my newsroom, we are doing new media and we are making great strides and we are being recognized um, for lots of things that we've done. One thing that we did that's very simple and I think speaks to um, uh, putting your money where your mouth is, is we put up every day a vote um, on our website where we allow voters to um, vote a story onto the front page. And we are very disciplined about this. Now, look, listen to him. He's laughing over here. Um, we're very disciplined about this, and we put it out there even if it's like a really dumb story. And what, we're, um, what we are stunned with is that the readers are constantly giving us what we would consider uh, heavy-duty news. Um, they want to know about the BP pipeline when there are other things about uh, Paris Hilton and her uh, stolen uh, technology that we put out there as one of the five things that they could vote onto the front page. So the readers are smart, and we have known this for many, many generations. Um, so don't let anybody give you the idea that readers are not smart. We've known that. That's why journalists, people like me who are editors, send 90 people out every day to find out what those smart people are thinking. That's what we call journalism. So uh, we are very invested in uh, smart people, and we um, want to be not only uh, talking to them, giving them information, but listening to them. Um, I wanted to say um, two more things, and then I'll be quiet. Uh, I wanted to reiterate that the mission of journalists um, that has uh, arisen and been codified, particularly during my career, is that our job is to tell the truth. And I spend a lot of time with the journalists in my small newsroom uh, working very hard at that. Tell the truth. What's the truth? Use the new technology to figure out ways to tell the truth. And I'll give you a quick example. We have a guy in our town named Jamie Thompson, who is a genius. He is the pioneer of stem cell research. 
He doesn't like to talk to journalists because he says we twist his words. So we took our new uh, technology. We bought a uh, digital um, uh, tape recorder two weeks ago, and he's the first person we went out to, and we said, Jamie, tell us who you are. And we're, we're creating a slideshow, an audio-visual slideshow that will uh, go up next week that is Jamie's words, him telling his own story as we share with readers um, photographs that we have collected and taken about stem cell issues and uh, graphics that explain it. So our mission, to tell the truth. We also have a mission to make a difference. I think the difference that we make in our communities is we create a community conversation. This is certainly true in Madison, where in 2004, 81% of the adults in our home county went and voted for president. That's about 30 points higher than your average um, uh, community. We still talk about issues in our, in our community, and the newspaper is a place where those issues start. And through the conversation we have, through our editorial page, through our blogs, through our forums, emerges values and issues that um, people need to think about as they, be, be, as they head to the polling booth. So I think that, that uh, if newspapers go away, if newspaper companies don't figure out the new business um, plan, uh, we would be uh, very, um, it would be very sad for our community and for you young people if that conversation uh, doesn't uh, continue because I don't know how you're going to govern yourself. I guess in conclusion, um, the, one of the goals that I am working on as a uh, near-dead person um, is um, as I get ready to hand off um, the uh, authority that I have to, to you younger people in the audience, is I'm looking at a world in which 21st century technology, the money that exudes from that is hopefully going to support 20th century values, and particularly journalistic values, of telling the truth, of making a difference in our communities. And I hope that you figure it out, and I'll be here to help you. Thanks. I apologize for laughing. That's all right. Um, a lot of people, apology. a lot of people have laughed at me, but I've been very strong. I understand <laughs> that you're the most lifelike person I've ever seen. <laughs> I think you have 400 years left, and so okay. I, that wasn't. I, I was, I was having too much fun and yeah. relaxing. The reason I laughed, and I'll be straight with you, is that um. I think they're letting the air out of the building. I was about to say, a <laughs> columnist is answering. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll just tell you. Uh, I, I will. I'll talk very briefly about the Boston Globe and our somewhat parlous uh, internet situation. But um, as probably many of you know, we, we have a ungainly um, commingling of two websites, the history of which utterly fascinates me. But the present reality of which is a problem for us. We have Boston.com, which is, I notice you have Madison.com, it's a highly desirable place to be, but we hide the Boston Globe newspaper behind Boston.com. It's a fascinating story to tell you sometime. Um, the only reason I laughed at you is because Boston.com 
which has enjoyed a modicum of financial success and is owned by the New York Times, which, is, which owns the Boston Globe, but we don't own our own website, which is bizarre. They, in a sense, vote you know, their favorite story. And inevitably, it's like the cat in the tree. And so that's why I kind of laughed, because I'm, I'm a great skeptic about the wisdom of crowds, this kind of uh, buzzword that's been out there for a while. And I have an anecdote I'll be happy to tell if anyone wants to ask me about the wisdom of crowds. Um, Fine, I'll be happy to tell you. Uh, Komsomolskaya Pravda in the 1970s um, always used to challenge its readers to play chess against um, the Soviet champion of the day. And, of course, the readers always lost because there was no wisdom in the crowd. They always chose the obvious move. The Soviet champion basically won in about 18 moves. I'm a great skeptic of the wisdom of crowds. Um, I'll try to keep my eye on the clock. I don't have prepared remarks. Um, I feel like my third son, I now know, coming third is sort of a blessing in a way because you can simply react to what the uh, more mature members of the family have said. Um, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And Madison is watching this and, and giggling at the, the concept that I'm the mature one. Even though this isn't... Uh, I'll, I'll let go with a few rants. But Ellen, I'm just curious, what's the penetration of your newspaper in, in Madison City Limits? We have, a, um, we have a rather low penetration in terms of home subscriptions because we have so many students. It's about 30%. However, our readership is 82%. Actually, it's 83%. It went up uh, last year. What this shows you is that uh, if you are an adult in Dane County, um, unless you are in prison, you are reading our paper. But only half of you are paying for it. I see. So you're, you're wrapping in the they're, web, web they're readers. No, are, no, they're sharing the paper. Oh, the notorious pass around. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I mean, I think it's one of the highest readership rates in the country. That is very high, and I mean, 80 uh, percent of voting among the population is very, very high, and um, it's a maybe it's too narrow a point. But, I mean, newspaper penetration is is a fascinating subject, and this is just astronomically high. I don't happen to know what the Boston Globes is. Uh, we're marooned in a very large uh, metropolitan area that ex effectively extends up to New Hampshire and down to Rhode Island. The New York Times' penetration in, in Manhattan is quite quite famous. It's you know one in nine households. It's um, it's 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 one of the lowest um, in America, but um, they're quite widely read on a national level. Maybe I'll just um, I don't want to I don't want to dwell at length about uh, the globe and our internet problems. There was a um, very accurate piece that appeared in the Wall Street Journal on Saturday, which referred to the the muddled middle of the of the newspaper business. Um, you know, we're owned by a very successful, pretty successful national newspaper, the New York Times. And if you live like I don't know, I do in Newton, Massachusetts, like there was an incredibly important story uh, about a referendum on the school, and of course that wasn't in the Boston Globe. So. Um, we're just in a tricky position, you know. Uh, are you going to get the best news in the Mideast from the Boston Globe or from the New York Times? Are you going to get the best news about the school bond from the Boston Globe or from the Newton Tab? Um, there was a time, and this uh, you're all much too young to remember this. It was probably eight years ago when uh, Bill Gates uh, cited the Boston Globe's website as the best newspaper website in America. It's more like maybe ten years ago. But it's, it's just a mess now. Um, and 
I, you know, I wish, uh, I remember the old days of the Mercury News was a real, a real, in my view, at least a real pioneer in terms of interesting newspaper websites. Um, separate discussion we can talk about. The Wall Street Journal is pretty effective among major newspapers, I think. Um, I happen to think the Times is quite good. Um, I think Times Select, which you may or may not know, is their kind of modest venture into paid uh, putting you know, stuff, as they say, behind the paywall, et cetera, et cetera, where you, um, I actually expensed my Times Select subscription, so the Salzburger family is paying for me to pay them in turn to read their august stable of columnists, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I, it's been much mocked in the blogosphere, the, the notion uh, specifically of Times Select. But um, I think over time, for an institution like ours, we're going to have to, um, as, as Dan and probably Ellen also know, I mean, we're ironically, you know, at a low point in circulation and a high point in readership. I mean, the, there's nothing particularly wrong with our content, but why pay for, you know, if you, let's, let's just say you like Dan Shaughnessy's writing about the Boston Globe. Well, you can read it for free. So um, it's a very difficult business model. I, I heard the term, you know, uh, mo obviously it's a period of transition. And um, I, I actually envy the New York Times. Uh, for, for staking out uh, material that they said, you know, well, we're going to make you pay to read Frank Rich, regardless of what you think of Frank Rich. We, I mean, this is like some, some totally uninteresting secret. I mean, about a year and a half ago, we were prepared to put our Red Sox material behind the paywall. Uh, you laugh. But we sell like 60,000 mailed copies of the Boston Globe, you know, to all parts of America because people really care about the Red Sox. And I don't know the reason why we uh, shrank from doing that. I mean, anyway, one can speculate. Um, I, I, I'm interested in the question of um, will newspapers survive? I have yet another anecdote uh, that I can try it out. I remember talking to Ellen Goodman about 15 years ago, and um, she completely mimicked a fa the famous, it's not the opening scene, but a very famous scene from Ninochka, an old movie uh, starring Greta Garbo, which is, of all things, sort of contains a parody of the Moscow show trials. And um, Greta Garbo plays a very tough female commissar who's come to Paris from Moscow. And she's met by uh, two apparatchiks on the uh, platform of the Garda Lazar. And they come rushing up to her and they say, comrade, comrade, tell us what's happening in Moscow. And Greta Garbo has this amazingly regal bearing and she's dressed beautifully. And she says, the news is that soon there will be fewer communists, but better ones. <laughs> and Ellen Goodman actually said this to me 13 years ago. She said, well, Alex, you know, we're going to have fewer readers, but better ones. Well, <laughs> how prescient. Um, I don't, I, I'm, I don't, I don't want to start a fight. You know, whenever anyone says that, of course, they just simply want to start a fight. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm something of a skeptic of uh, citizens' media, um, you know, wh whatever that means. Um, I, I agree that uh, newspapers are, are taking their licks, perhaps their long-deserved licks. Uh, the New York Times, maybe because they're at the top of the dung heap, is... Uh, taking more licks than others. Um, I've always been quite interested in, in my readers in, in an extremely manipulative way, meaning I want to steal ideas from them. Um, I've often corrected a lot of my viewpoints based on communication with the readers. I have uh, I've been email communication with my readers for about 10 years. I'm, um, I, I'm sort of, I'm, even though uh, 
various uh, you know internet schemes are certainly eating away at us and and even though I've seen some truly wonderful uh, alternative news gathering operations out there I, Dan's focus was somewhat different but I was curious to see, you know, Yahoo threw a bunch of money at some kid. Um, he's, he's not exactly a kid. In fact, he's a very talented uh, video journalist. And maybe some of you have been on the Yahoo site to see what they've done. Um, they've, they've paid a, a, a talented, ambitious, adventurous young man to go report stories in places where, frankly, you don't find a lot of reporting. And... Um, my my hat is off to him and them, you know. On the other hand, I'm 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 more than skeptical. I, I don't I hate to say this. I mean, Craig Newmark's idea of journalism, which he's kind of given hints about, um, isn't isn't particularly interesting to me. I mean, and it kind of, he's the founder of, of the fantastically successful Craigslist. Um, on the other, you know, and this notion of you know you have the the difficult-to-reach uh, stem cell guy, and you put a video camera in front of him. I, I think that's fantastic on the one hand. On the other hand, I have to tell you, well, suppose you put that video camera in front of the guy who ran the big dig, okay, or the head of the National Security Agency. And you said, well, Mr. National Security Agency, explain to us your policy for eavesdropping on Americans' conversations. Well, I mean, I don't want to sugarcoat it. I'm not even very left-wing, but I mean, it would just be a pack of lies. So, yeah, I mean, direct, unmediated journalism, perhaps from an intellectually honest uh, stem cell scientist is one thing. Um, but direct, unmediated experience of, you know, bald-faced pack of lies from someone who's tapping America's phones I, and I don't want to get too bleary-eyed, but and again, uh, curiously, I'm not p politically of the left, but um, I'm very grateful, you know, to the Salzberger family and Bill Keller. I mean, who are just just being slanged, you know, every 10 seconds, for taking a lot of legal risks, um, for printing information the government didn't want printed. Um, so I'm 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 sort of going to uh, stop right here. I I, I don't want to present myself as someone who's unaware of the fantastic things that are happening in the broader digital world. But um, it's truly a time of transition where I think we haven't quite balanced the equities of the readers and the professionals. Thank you. Thank you very much. Are we work Is this live? Yes. Thanks. Thanks. Very much, Alex. Uh, I, I, I was surprised at how sort of uh, moderate you were. I was expecting even even greater uh, uh, annoyance. And I, I want to encourage uh, I, I want to encourage rage if that's what you actually feel. Uh, let me mention to the audience now that we now turn to the part of our session that is almost always lively and even more instructive than what you get from the uh, panel. So a lot a lot is riding on how you behave. But there are there are microphones at each end. Uh, Please come up to the microphones. The reason we have to do it this way is because we're videotaping. The camera can't really get people if we pass the microphones around. So as you think of questions, come up to either side and we will call on you. I'd like to begin, though, by asking our panelists to develop uh, a couple of the uh, uh, points that were uh, mentioned uh, 
during their during their discourse. And one of the one of the most interesting and and I think uh, undeveloped ideas was the one that uh, Ellen mentioned about the problem of old and new business models. Uh, I, perhaps I should also mention that that uh, the flyer that uh, comes along with this event uh, contains some significant graphs inside that you might want to look like that, that look at that sort of tell a rather a, a rather decisive story about the aging of the newspaper reader. Uh, and it really is a, 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 a critically significant factor. It's implicit in what people have been saying. Uh, the younger uh, the cohort is, the less interested that cohort is in printed materials, the more committed is, the more committed it is to, as we might expect, to, to new, to emergent technologies. And the implication of these numbers is that within 25 or 30 years, there won't be any people who want to read newspapers. So we, so we need to, we, we, we need to think in a more systematic way about that. And I take it that the digital, uh, that, that, that the question of, of, uh, different business models is a part of this. And I wonder, Ellen, if you could talk a bit more about that and maybe we could have our, uh, our, our other panelists comment on it as well. What would we mean by, a, by, by a, a new business model that would help newspapers remain printed objects? Well, the, um, there's a lot of people who are much smarter than I am that are, are working on this. Um, and um, Dan, do you, what is the group? that's associated with API that's doing the disruptive uh, innovation thing. There's a, there's a group in, um, in our community, in our journalism community, working on the future of newspapers, and they're about to, uh, they spent a year studying new business models, and they're about to pop their results. Um, the way that newspapers uh, support themselves now, in general... Maybe that's Newspaper Next. Newspaper Next, it is. Right. Yes, it is Newspaper Next. Thank you. Um, uh, is about 20% of our revenues come from um, circulation, the price you pay of your, for your newspaper. The other 80% comes from um, the um, advertising that um, is associated with the newspaper and the website. Most um, newspapers, the website is generating at this point about 5% um, uh, of revenues. Um, and the Sunday newspaper is um, uh, providing about 95% of the uh, re revenues. There's other little revenue streams that come in. So you see what we have here if those of you who are business, uh, uh, business uh, inclined to business studies will, uh, is what they call a cash cow. The Sunday paper is a cash cow. So um, we are milking the cash cow as we move through the transition. Unfortunately, in my mind, what's happening is that um, the people who run our industry are um, very interested in making money, which is not a bad thing. Um, but if we are solely interested in making money, that is a bad thing. And we are looking at the web as solely a place to make money. It is a marketplace. And I've spent uh, many meetings um, with people talking to me about inventory. We have to have more inventory. And what they're really saying to me is we need more stuff on the web, stuff, inventory, 
that we can sell as our own. They're talking about journalism. <laughs> so journalism and inventory, I guess, can be synonymous. But as we move forward, I think the credibility of information is going to be something that at least newspaper websites, whatever we call ourselves in the future, news media companies, the credibility of our information is going to be our um, competitive advantage. And what I'm concerned about in our industry is that we're not paying as much attention to that as we are at uh, black spaces on um, web pages that you can sell advertising around. Now, there are people like me, strong-minded people like me, um, uh, editors of uh, many of the nation's um, most powerful uh, papers that are talking amongst ourselves, and the, and the newspaper's next project is um, tapping all of our um, ideas. Um, so that we move forward with um, the concept that the product that we are um, offering to consumers is involves credible information. There are many other uh, models that do not do that. They offer content, um, for example, classified ads, which is the uh, Craigslist uh, model, um, or they offer shopping opportunities, which is the jellyfish model. And um, we are playing around with how credible information and marketplace meet in this new world um, that um, keeps alive the cash cow as it invests in the future, which we don't even know what it actually is. The, the bad news is that the cash cow is done. It's over, and it's it's unfortunate that that's the case in some sense, but it's the cash cow is the result of the fact that newspapers for the last 50 years were monopolies, basically monopolies in their communities with monopoly-style profits that Wall Street got very accustomed to and very happy with and demands not that they be maintained, but that they increase if at all possible. And that the competitors for the cash, for the money that's coming in, um, like eBay, like Craigslist, like Monster.com, like a whole bunch of them that are going after discrete pieces of those revenue streams that, have, that, that were a, a consequence of a monopoly business where there was no better place and no, no place as good <clears throat> to put your money. It, it's... The thing about those businesses, uh, these web-based ones especially, is that they are uh, they're nimble. Newspapers are not nimble, typically. They are uh, hungry. Newspapers are getting hungry, which is good. They are typically pretty well capitalized by investors who see that there's a good business there. They're usually willing to live on lower margins. And... The one other part is that for, doing, for, the, for all of those competitors, doing journalism would be a ridiculous distraction from the business they're in. Yeah, I don't know how you compete with that. But see, that's my point. That's, this is exactly my point. Um, how are we going to govern ourselves? How are we going to... I mean, I'm, just, I'm not talking about um, electing a president. I'm talking about buy a car. 
um, if we um, aren't giving people credible information that is organized in a way that very, very busy people, like the people in this audience, can take in. It's, it's that's, a, that's the big, that's the crazy thing. It's a the other thing question. is, I live in the real world. I do not live in a world of a laboratory. I live in a world that has 90 people that depend upon my judgment to uh, pay their paychecks. And so what I'm doing is a balancing act, keeping the cash cow alive, keeping that credibility, those great values that we have alive, at the same time investing in these new technologies that I think are going to be a great, deal, a great part of our future. Um, but, you know, Dan, that's one of the things that makes me crazy in all these conferences that I go to is that people... Uh, say yes. They don't. They don't need to invest in journalism. They don't. You know. They don't have to do that. Well, they're stealing our information. They're, I, I'm <laughs> they're stealing I'm my very, intellectual capital. I'm very sorry about that, but I'm not going to. There's not a damn thing I can do about it. And the other thing is that they're doing a better job for the advertisers than the newspapers and TV and everyone else. This is. They're stealing your your real customers, who are the advertisers. When you look at revenues, that's that's your real customer, as as a, as a business. Your major customer is the advertiser. They're taking them away because they do a better job for them. I'm I'm heartbroken by this trend, that that's undermining the business. So, so this message is the economic base of newspapers is disappearing. Will newspapers survive because of that? I, I don't think it's disappearing as fast as Dan thinks it is. I think that's where we disagree the most. I mean, and I look at numbers, you know, every day. So I'm. Uh, oh. I pray I'm wrong. I would Alex, love you to want to make wrong. a comment before we turn to the audience. I don't wrong. I think the the pace at which it's going to happen is slower than um, than you think. Number one and number two, I think that newspapers are really jiggy with this new world. We are not sitting there uh, on our hands um, hoping for. Um, the business to come back. We're going after it and we're creating new content that is web only. I don't think of myself as just the editor of the newspaper. I'm editor of our website also. I don't know. Yeah, I know people are waiting. I learned something today, which made today unusual, which is I'm writing, I have a piece in tomorrow's paper. is very directly analogous to the issue that David raised. I have a piece about NPR, which for the first time in 25 years has a um, listenership decline. But like ours, and I, I agree more with Ellen and Dan, but, but like uh, our Sunday newspaper, um, they can't, you know, they, in a sense, they can't get rid of Dan Shore. You know, they can't get rid of these fossils that are hanging around because the old people give money based on, you know, Cokie and blah, 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 blah. So in Chicago, where there's smart people, Chicago Public Radio realizes we can't really change format. We've got to stick to this kind of sanctimonious, you know, NPR classic. They're starting a whole different public radio station, which is clever. I think it's clever. I mean, and I, I wish we had that option. Maybe a creative person could make that case. Maybe but we you, do. But you do have it. You've got the, the ink on paper technology, and, you, and if you can work out these problems you have with Boston.com, you've got that technology, too. I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying it's going to be successful, but... Well, I'm, I'm going to interrupt I'm, you. I'm I mean, yeah, I agree, and I mean, something we have, none of us has talked about, which I've used to find quite interesting is, I mean, some papers have gone into the, uh, in Chicago specifically, you know, they've mm -hmm. gone into the giveaway market, which I'm actually not very contemptuous of, um, and, is in, and we're in, of course, with Metro, 
it has possible Washington yeah. D.C. Yeah. that rich yeah. guy. Um, yeah. Well, we've already Thank trained you. the public Thank to think you. that news is basically free. free. Why mm -hmm. not go all the way? Yeah, I mean that's a, that's an interesting model, well, and I'm I know. Glad, I'm glad to see that some pain and anguish, as well as passion, is beginning to appear. Let's start over here, and we'll come back. You're first, then you're second. We'll go back. Hi. Uh, welcome. Thank you very Thank much. You. Ellen, you remind me so much of my girlfriend's family. Oh, yeah? Are they Irish Catholic? <laughs> uh, no, they're from the Midwest. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have ruby red slippers on right now. <laughs> oh, no, wait. Are you wishing you were home? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Actually, that's very apropos to what I, what I want to ask um, okay. experts. Visiting. We had, um, I attended a lecture last night from Regina Miller, a German artist talking about one of the more exciting things that happened in the world of comics, which is the rise of female comics uh, authors in the last decade. So it's a smooth curve. Um, last week we had Scott McCloud here and sitting right where you guys are all sitting today. And uh, I think almost everyone in the room is probably a fan of Bill Watterson. And if you've ever read anything that he's, he's written, um, you probably anticipate what I'm going to mention, which is that he complains about how his parents say when they were kids, the comics were huge and colorful and took up large amounts of space that you can put ads around. So um, can you just, and I really am glad to have someone here who understands the business of it, and maybe you can explain some of the economics about the comics. What would happen if you had two times, four times, eight times the surface area? Uh, what if the comics were in color? Like how much does that cost and have you ever done studies that show how much money you could make off that? Just tell me about the comics and has anyone tried to make them big and good like all the cartoon artists want? Um, yeah, we have talked about that. Um, and uh, I'm afraid that on the list of priorities, it, it, um, it doesn't uh, hit the top when you're trying to keep um, all the people in the room paid. Um, however, um, I will tell you this anecdote. Um, so I've been, in, I've been doing this for 30 years. Um, and recently we, cu we cut the stock listings out of the newspaper. Um, and in my um, community, I was prepared for uh, really difficult things. Sixty people called, um, and, uh, and they were calmed down when we told them there was a phone number they could call to get their, their stock listings. And I felt terrible about it, but it, it, it had to go. It wasn't something that um, was uh, riveting for our readers. About two weeks later, um, uh, the features editor, um, actually it was uh, before, um, the features editor said um, that he wanted to add the Sudoku co uh, comic, excuse me, puzzle to our paper, uh, which he did do. Thank you, Dan. Um, and um, we received um, 1,000 phone calls and emails within the first day. So when you, when you look at the newspaper, the things that people really care about often aren't the things that we journalists think, they're, think they care about. They really didn't care too much. 60 out of 150,000 uh, readers, or perhaps we actually think we have about 300,000 readers a, a day, um, about 450 on Sunday, um, is not much. A thousand in like you know five hours. That's enough to to put the um, the puzzle that we took out in order to um, put Sudoku in back in the next day. We didn't think about it. So I think what you're what you're talking about is very interesting and is something that um, we struggle with is 
the kind of material that we need to put into the newspaper to keep it going. And I personally believe that the newspaper, one of the newspaper's function is to give people an entertaining break in the day. And I take a lot of heat about this because people say I'm not a serious journalist. Um, and so uh, Color Comics, great idea, really expensive. We'd have to raise the uh, advertising rates, we have to raise the price of the paper, um, we have to probably get rid of a whole bunch of uh, people in order to afford it. And so it hasn't really risen to the, um, the level of uh, emergency measures. Um, uh, but I think it's a good idea. There are some papers, I believe the, um, there's this really cool paper in, um, uh, in, um, in Canada, and I'm not going to remember the name of it, that totally restructured its newspaper based on what they think consumers want, what they think readers, users want, and um, Hamilton, Ontario uh, paper, and they put color comics back in, I believe. So it's, it's a good How about idea. Not just color, but um, enlarged space for black and white? Right. This, this, uh, what, what happens here is we've got Sophie's Choice. Okay, so what are we going to take out? It also has to do with the syndicators, I think, because even if one paper changed, given the economics of it, uh, the syndicators are the ones, in my opinion, who, who as I understand it, who, 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 Im, who in the beginning, anyway, imposed these standardized rules because they wanted to sell to many people. Right. Well, they, they impose uh, rules on the size, but we could take the paper up and um, take all of our comics and make them bigger and put them in color, uh, but it would mean that they're probably... The, the thing that would go first probably would be um, uh, business news, um, then um, national international news. We'd have to but take. You don't it, see that Sophie's as increasing choice. readership at huh? all. You don't see that as increasing readership. Um, right now, no. Right now, uh, people seem pretty darn. If 83% of the adults in our county are reading our paper on Sunday, that's a pretty satisfied crowd. Excuse me. Let me let me urge everyone to that we uh, to, to be concise. Uh, I will try to take my own advice in a way that I don't normally do. I encourage our panelists to do the same and mm -hmm. the audience. Hello. Okay. Uh, I apologize for my broken English now because I'm I'm from Germany, but I make an effort. And my view probably will be quite European as well on journalism. That's why I'm also glad to be here because. I heard now that you try really to keep in contact with your readers and try to give them what they want to hear, but I was wondering, wouldn't it also be a mission if you say you want to tell the truth or uh, bring up the truth, to, um, to have more kind of educational aspect in the whole thing and try to open the horizon of your readers and show them what's relevant in the world rather than always trying to catch up with what they are interested in what, right now, what, what they see of the world and what they think uh, might be important. Because, and this uh, is the second part of what I want to say, me, as a, I as a young person, do, um, why, why do I go to the web rather than pick up the New York Times or the Boston Globe or something when I'm here is because when I have these newspapers, I have one small tiny part of information of what's going on in the world. And if I go to the web, I, ha I can gather 10 different points of view. And yeah, I was wondering if one could maybe open the spectrum rather than focus on five big issues. I don't know if you know the, uh, the Zürich Zeitung. Maybe you knew, you know. That's what they are trying. 
and I think that's a big challenge for journalism. Yeah, well, I mean, the web has been amazing for, you, you can read any, any newspaper in the world in any language that you understand, and I mean, one of the, the terrible vices that's crushing just my newspaper, for instance, is that as we make the newspaper smaller, um, there's less foreign news, we have fewer men and women overseas, so the thrust of what you wish for us, alas, we're moving in precisely the opposite direction. One, one thing, I, newspapers could do on the web more than they do, which is hardly at all, uh, is point outside their own domains to material that they didn't do but that is either uh, amplifying or expanding upon things they are already doing or simply pointing to people who did the things they didn't. Uh, the, the role of the newspaper, I hope, becomes as much one of guide as oracle in the next uh, period and that uh, something we're learning in watching what goes on on the web is that if you send people away uh, because what you're sending them to is good, they'll come back and be, they'll say, oh, I can trust them to do that. So it's something newspapers have until recently been, to put it mildly, reluctant to do. And uh, I th in the future, I hope they're much more active in doing that. Yeah, I just want to clear up um, one uh, point here. I think we need to give uh, newspapers, uh, readers, and our website's users uh, not just what they want, but what they need. So there's that. Um, I'm in the business of broad-based media. And um, I think that what you'd lose if you became a total fractured um, uh, sort of uh, uh, air traffic controller of information is that community conversation that I think is so important and so um, unique to the American uh, newspaper. My read of European newspapers, and I'm not an expert, um, is that there are many different voices coming from many different papers, and there, that, that's how that conversation occurs. Um, the way I, uh, I hope it occurs in my community is that the conversation starts with this uh, marketplace of ideas just in the broad-based paper that I edit and the website that I edit, um, and that that's a very important part of the, um, the media that um, um, I'm, I'm a fan of, that I would be very sad if it was lost, that community conversation that I think um, helps us tease out what really matters to us as a community. Yes. Yeah, I understand what you say, and I, I see that that is important. Maybe the difference is what I'm missing here, that in Europe we have, we have dozens of small newspapers in every country, but then there are these community newspapers, and then if you're looking for different information about the world, about the national issues, then you go to the next newspaper. So maybe we just have a lot of different levels of information of newspapers so that everybody can actually find what they want to and don't try to pack it all into the yeah. New York Times. I think we're learning um, from what Dan said that, and, and I think we're, uh, my peers and I are doing a much better job of, we have links all over the place. As a matter of fact, sometimes I wonder if we have too many links. Um, uh, but that we, we do believe what Dan said and I think that that is going to be our way to address the needs that you express. 
hearing some arguments, and I'm trying to kind of organize them, and I think there's, there's two related but separate issues. One has to do with, with the paper and newspaper, whether paper as print will survive or not, and, and how will that shift or how much of that will shift into virtual media. And the other is, I, I like your term of unmediated journalism, w whether unmediated journalism will eventually replace totally journalism. And, and I don't think so. There always will be a value if, if we separate the free, free news from that extra value added. So there could be another issue here of how, how, how the press adds value beyond what, what is obtained free. So if you were to separate those two issues, one being just the medium itself and the other being the value added that a journalist brings to the table, could you comment on those two related, but I think separate phenomena? Wants to start? I'll go, I'll go quickly and answer the second. I mean, the, the problem, my, my take on the second, first of all, you know, your summary of what we've been talking about was excellent. Uh, the issue is that, I mean, we, we haven't found a price point, I think, for editorial judgment or whatever, for, for, for mediating experience. Uh, and Dan was showing uh, some of the video. I remember, uh, you know, during the tsunami, it was kind of amazing. You could see all these different uh, videos of the tsunami. And that was, of course, unmediated journalism. Um, but I, I, we're just we're still we're still floundering. I mean, when you were talking, the one thing that was interesting to me was that you know what did the Times choose to put behind the paywall? What did they choose to ask you to pay for? Curiously, not not facts, not information, but the most highly mediated form of journalism. I mean, kind of opinion, you know. And when I think of the blogs that I like and that I go to, the finite number, um, you, go, you go for precisely what you're talking, you go in a sense for the journalistic elixir, for the, for the combination of attitude and analysis. So, um, but, but in the so-called traditional newspaper industry that I'm a part of, we, you know, there's a lot of fear about what, what can we charge for this, and, and, and a lot of uncertainty, because alas, and this isn't the case with Ellen's newspaper, but I mean, we, we're just, you know, we have seen uh, continuing circulation declines, and uh, even though I'm not a manager, I'm sure that's quite uh, disconcerting to choose a euphemism. You know, there's one thing should be added about Time Select that I think is important, which is that it, uh, if when you sign up for that, or if you're, and this is a nice wrinkle, if you subscribe to the paper you get it. and you get it every day, you get, of course you can log on if you're a subscriber and get the, the uh, uh, columnist. But in addition to that, and this is a tremendous advantage, at least for professors, <laughs> you have access to the archive. You can go back in the Times archive and look 10, 15, 20 years back and pull articles up. And that is, that is value-added. That is something someone might pay for even if they weren't interested in Frank Rich. They might want to be able to use the archive of the Times as a, as a research uh, forum. Of well, that was sort. a significant profit center for the Times and for me to, uh, beforehand. So I, that, but we haven't seen the numbers, you know. Right. If you if you if you remember, you can you can use the archive. You, you can actually download up to a hundred articles per, per month free. Right. 
I just wanted to um, add the, the mediated journalism that you're talking about is um, journalism that, as part of the New York Times family, I'm sure you've heard this phrase, um, they are very um, keen on uh, noting that they practice the journalism of, of verification versus, versus the journalism of affirmation. And so these folks are opining on established fact, and I think that's the difference between going to some blog that is a source that um, that you find entertaining but may not be um, um, operating on verifiable fact. Um, I think that what the one question that you you asked that is really hard to tell, and I'd love to hear what Dan says. And the answer, my answer is I don't know. It's how long are we going to be interested in this old technology of the newspaper? I happen to love it, um, which is not surprising, because you can scan it, um, you can carry it around with you, you can toss it if you don't like it, it doesn't crash your email, um, and so it, it's not a bad technology. Um, but how you, long you it will be? You can't wrap fish in a, you in a, get, in that's a digital right, screen. It's, it has right. many uses. Um, you can clip articles out and send them to your mother. Um, uh, I don't know how long that's going to last. I don't know how long that's going to be useful. It's for very us. easy to underestimate the incredible power of old technologies. The book is a far more brilliant and genius technology than any than, than anything that can break if, or that needs electricity. Books can survive even being dropped in the bathtub if you get them out quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, the, but I think the main point that Ellen is making is the portability of these things is something that, uh, although there are fantasies that we can make digital technologies as portable as as uh, dead tree technologies, it, remain, it, it, it hasn't happened yet. And it may, it may be a very long time before the ease of use and portability issue is really uh, m makes a transition into, into new media. I'm not sure. Over here, question? I take for granted that the technology will improve at a rapid pace and that in not too many generations of technology from now, there will be uh, things that are, uh, you know, this flexible and weigh not much more than that, that have uh, very high quality, high resolution screens, tons of memory, and that have wireless connections to the, to the world. Um, I don't know when that's going to happen, but it's going to. And that, you know, the, the, I think the portability test that everyone is talking about is the bathroom test, right? So uh, that's that's just not something that's 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 not going to happen. It clearly will. I don't know when. And there are other issues about it. But I, I want to go back to that mediated thing for a second. And I'm I'm disturbed by the notion that. Um, that all bloggers, the, the implicit suggestion that bloggers are um, opinion machines and uh, uh, put things out based on what they'd like to, the world to look like as opposed or, or based on other things. Um, I can name a whole lot of traditional media organizations or ones that are in big media at some level that sound very much like that. And I can name a whole bunch of blogs that give me better journalism on the stuff they write about than anybody writing in traditional media today. Uh, typically on narrow niches, fairly narrow, but 
Dan, is that because you think the blogs are so specialized that the people who are writing really know what they're doing? It's as if they're all experts on the ones that you're praising? No, it's not expert for expert. It's often expert for everybody. Right. Uh, it, and you can, you can find these across the board on pretty much whatever you're looking for. Are most blogs journalism? Of course not. But out of some you know, several tens of millions, uh, it doesn't take a very high percentage to add up to a very large number. And there is a large number of these now that, uh, where you find actual uh, fact-based journalism going on in ways that, uh, on the things they write about, puts to shame uh, a lot of what's being done in the traditional media on those same subjects. Again, I'm not wishing for less of what newspapers do when they do it, uh, when they do it really well, especially the kinds of community watchdog things that uh, I think are crucial. But uh, it just bothers me to to hear what, what is, I, I think, uh, it, it sounds to me like a, a, an impression of the blogosphere that uh, may in some, you know, if, if you pick one side or the other, you would have to be on that side. But I don't pick a side. Uh, Doc Searles here, who's going to get a question in a second, is, he's famous for saying this is about and, not or. And, and I, I, I listen to him. You're making us excited, but we have to wait for Searles because <laughs> I only buy the Boston Sunday Globe now, and uh, I buy that in the hopes that the coupons will pay for it. <laughs> they will. <laughs> sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Um, I had a I, I asked this question this morning at Harvard to another group of journalists, and uh, I'm going to take another swing at it now. At, at that group, as this group ha has was talking about truth in newspapers, truth in journalism. I don't go to the newspapers for truth. I don't go to the TV for truth. I don't go to the magazines for truth. I go to poets for truth. And you guys aren't poets. Ms. Foley talked about credible information and verifiable information. And I think it would be a lot better if journalism and journalists would get off their high horse, stop talking about truth, start talking about accuracy, and the New York Times and the Boston Globe and many, 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 many other papers have not been particularly accurate within the past few years and verifiable and credible. And I think that would make a whole difference in the conversation between the journalists and the readers if we weren't talking about truth anymore, but about accuracy, verifiability, and credibility. I never used the word truth. Uh, that showed up in uh, Dan's PowerPoint. I don't, I don't fool around with that word. I sort of agree with you. Accuracy is a separate thing. And, I'm going to defer to others on that. Can I, can I come to the defense of these folks here for a second? I, what, what we're talking about is everyone who consumes media at any level, and forget about the fact that we all also now produce where we can, that at some level of skepticism should be part of our reading or listening or watching to whatever it is. But what they do... I start with a much, much lower level of skepticism because I know they have processes in place 
to try and get it right, to try and be accurate, to try and be thorough, to, to try the things that are not in evidence in some other places. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a scale. I have, you know, there's a, you know, the BS meter we all have built in. It's tuned differently when I read their stuff as opposed to random blog A, which I, which I don't assume. But on, on the question of, what, of truth, I wish, when, now I'm going to beat on them for a second, I, I wish that newspapers would do a great, something more often than they've, not, than they've done in the recent past, which is to say, uh, when somebody they're interviewing tells an outright lie to say in the next paragraph, that of course is bullshit. <laughs> and, and here is the actual fact where what we have too much in traditional media now is stenography. Right. And stenography ain't journalism from my point of view. Uh, but it's, and I'm not talking about taking a position on it. I'm just saying that's not true when, they, when someone says something like that. And it doesn't happen enough. I would... I think it would improve our uh, perception of the media if they would just do that. I think there's a nuance here, um, and let me tell an anecdote to um, hopefully tease it out. Um, we're in a we're having a gubernatorial race in our state, and um, the incumbent is a uh, moderate. Uh, well, he's a moderate Democrat. He's a moderate moderate. Everything. And the uh, challenger is a, a Republican fellow who is um, saying some pretty provocative things and, and being very critical of um, the incumbent, um, which is nice to have a race where there's people who are different. <laughs> so you have a choice. Anyway, um, the, uh, I think it was last week, maybe the week before, the uh, Republican challenger, a guy named Green, um, came up with this... Um, press release um, and this press conference and this big hoo-ha deal um, about how he was um, opposed to stem cell research, but he was giving $25 million to, um, in research to um, an effort to create um, uh, stem cells without destroying embryos. Uh, the um, the uh, his definition of destroying embryos is much uh, broader than mine would be. In other words, if you at all um, play around with the blasto cell, um, that's destroying life. So I'm sitting in the news meeting, and the um, assistant city editor um, tells about the story. I said, do you buy that? And he said, well, you know, it happened. You know, a guy said this. I said, where, where would that $25 million go? Nobody does research like this. As far as I know, science now says that you can pull a, a cell out and perhaps um, create um, a line of stem cells from that. But this is like saying um, I want to do um, research on the uh, sustainability of human life on Pluto. It, you can't do that right now. You can't go there. Um, so, so we need to put this in context. Um, this guy is what this fellow is really saying is he's, is he's going to give $25 million to research um, that really uh, it's a good idea, but it doesn't exist. He's putting, to, putting forward an you know, argument that has no, that is hollow. And 
you know, everybody in the news meeting was started to look down at their shoes because it, the way we used to practice journalism, we would just, well, it was he said or she said. Putting context, um, which is what Dan was um, referring to earlier, I believe, is something that we are working very, very hard on in this um, era of um, many, many experts at your fingertips and the many channels of media that you have. And I think that in my shop, when I talk about telling the truth, it is um, my way of saying, turn on your bullshit meter. And uh, don't let somebody, even in a straight news story, not a column, but in a straight news story, bamboozle us um, with some kind of uh, proposal that doesn't work. Now, we haven't gotten to the point where um, we can say in the next paragraph, and by the way, this is bullshit. Um, but uh, we do have ways of signaling that to the reader and... Um, uh, and I'm going to have to think about that, Dan. <laughs> Just a, uh, a simple question. I'm, I'm wondering why, with most papers, I think, um, we, uh, we give away the web on the web what we charge for in the daily paper, and then we charge for the stuff that's fish-wrapped tomorrow by putting it behind a paywall and then charging $2.50 for it. When that same content, if it were exposed on the web and Google could search it, would increase our authority, Google could place advertising on it, Yahoo could too, there would be revenue from it other than selling it directly. But it seems to me most papers are still busy locking that stuff up. And I'm wondering why, you know, what's the logic behind that? Because it seems kind of ironic and strange to me. I don't think anyone at this table knows the answer to that. That's a sophisticated business analysis. I, I, I mentioned Mead briefly. I mean, they, they made something like $25 million a year off that archive. So that's the tipping point type issue where somebody with, with a sophisticated business background would have to I – mean, I understand exactly what you're saying, but I don't know. But I bet someone at the New York Times, if they felt they could make more money – doing what you suggested would have done it by now. The, the Times, I, when I wrote about this a year and a half ago, uh, and basically following Doc's lead on this issue, I, I got a uh, polite, you know, are you kidding note from someone at the Times where this is a real profit center. But I think the Times is almost unique correct. in that. Absolutely I would say, yeah. for, I w and, and the, some of the more threatened papers, are, are the uh, big regionals that don't get that much from the archives that at some level are the history of their communities. And yeah, that's right. The Globe would be in a more interesting position. But, but any regional paper of, of, of any size, it wouldn't have to be big or small. But when you're the history of the community, um, if every article in your archive had a, a permalink to it and then you'd, I think what would start happening is things like uh, students doing papers would start linking to those. People in the community who want to who have anything that they care about in the community would start surfacing the things from the archive that have this value to the community as a place and that that would rise high in Google and suddenly there would be real revenues coming in from uh, the searches for those and the, and the ones less used. I'd, I can't imagine that most papers 
would come out behind on that one. I just don't it understand. this inventory question. That, uh, would, would you like to well, then you'd have, you'd have a lot of inventory. That's yeah. my point. Right. Well, is your question why why do we not charge for the archives or why do we not charge why, why for the entire we, website? Why so, actually, I understand giving away the daily paper because it's an advertising uh, revenue producer for most. That's why you see an article that jumps eight times to get where it's going because it's more... Uh, advertising uh, possible with that. But with the archives, it's a different matter. And I think that there's a, um, I mean, it, it's, I, I don't want to demean it by calling it fish wrap, but that's what it is in, for the daily paper. And, and the upside of having that exposed on the web is so large that uh, I, I imagine for the New York Times, maybe, you know, they had a substantial business there. Um, Mead, I suppose, they take that $25 million, that may be a lot for me, but for the rest of the world, you know, I, I live in Santa Barbara where we have a newspaper that's melting down right now. And I think one reason they have, I mean, okay. please somebody do an intervention. That's what they need there. <laughs> um, uh, but but they lie, the writers there, the ones that, are, that were there and that are still left, refer to, to it as the $2.50 hole. And, they don't, and the thing is, and I know working for Linux Journal, it's very hard for us to recruit writers yeah. know, who know that their stuff is going to get buried day two. And Google won't find it. Yeah. And it's like it just disappears from the face of the earth, except for a few people who bother to subscribe. It's a, and even if you subscribe, you still have that thing where you only get 100 of them and stuff like that. It seems, it seems pointlessly well, anachronistic a hundred and a month, short-sighted. Even, even from 100 a month, a hundred, exactly a hundred a good. But, but again, the New York Times, I think, is a really anomalous uh, right. example. I, I think for most newspapers, there's this sort of trend. It, it's, yeah. it's almost fashionable. It's that nobody seems to be thinking about it. Why? Yeah. You know, it's just it pro forma. Like you lock up the yeah. archives. It yeah. seems like you're implying, though, that, it, that, that, the, that one model might be you can't, you do the throwaway. When it happens, it's free. You can, you can read today's or even, to, or even yesterday's paper for nothing. But if you want to read last week's paper, make it in the archive. It seems to me that you could do both without it. With well, my, my suggestion is go ahead and charge for today on the web, just like you do on the, on the you know, charge for the stuff that's fresh. Charge for the, the, you know, align the two models, make the web and the newspaper the same, and then make them the same day two. Make it the same tomorrow. Make that stuff available and sell advertising on it. There's an awful yeah. lot of money in that. Yeah. And I mean, right now, for example, in Santa Barbara, the, the, if you look up anything about Santa Barbara, the newspaper doesn't show up anywhere. You yeah. go pages and pages through Google, yeah. and it's not there yeah. because all that stuff is pointlessly. However, up. if you look up anything in San Francisco, you find that the Chronicle, which has a, a substantial backlog from its archives... And it's online, open now, right? It, it's been open for a long time. Yeah, and, and it really shows up. And when you look for things about San Francisco, you find the Chronicle again and again and again showing up as, as the place of authority, the place of the community memory and history. Uh, I, I have to believe that's got to have more value than uh, the... 300 lawyers who will pay for uh, specific articles and bill it to their clients. I, I just Dan, one thing about this point that, I, that strikes me as very important is one of the things that the, the, the discourse, the discourse of lamentation that now sort of surrounds old line journalists and anyone, anyone who's grown up in, in, the, in the world of newspapers, the world of journalism feels this. And there's a, we're afflicted by a kind of agonized nostalgia in a way right now. Uh, and one of the main 
complaints, one of the main laments, has to do with regional and local papers. And it's, all, it's all cl already clear that the Washington Post and the Times and the Wall Street Journal are figuring out how to survive in cyberspace. But the question about local, local news and, and regional papers is, at, at least at the moment, much more problematic. And it seems to me, Dan, that what you're suggesting is one way in which these regional papers have, a, have a, a, something to sell, have, some, ha have a history that actually is potentially something really of value that could help their survival. Well, speaking for the nation's regional newspapers, um, uh, one of our biggest problems is, is that our stuff isn't online. It's on microfilm. And we recently uh, went, uh, well, I've, I've been through many meetings on this. It would cost us more than a million dollars to digitalize or digitize, however you want to say it, our uh, archives. So there's that. Um, this make this is a. I would love to do this. Maybe Google will do it for nothing if you well, will. Actually, that's a good that's, question. What's, um, what's happening is that there yeah. are agencies out there that uh, there's a new business uh, called High Beam. I don't know who owns that, but I'm finding our stories popping up. You can only get an excerpt, um, but they promise you that they can, you can get the story if you buy it. And of course, our attorneys are speaking with them. Um, mm. But the last, you know, uh, it's hard for me to make an argument to my publisher who is trying to make ends meet um, in a very profitable business, but trying to make a year-over-year -year increase so that our stockholders continue to invest in us, um, which is another eight-hour conversation, um, that, you know, if you just give me a million dollars, I will um, uh, make money on the archive. When, uh, two years ago, when we did that, the city of Madison went nuts that we would charge for that. Is today's paper microfilm tomorrow? Yes. What? It is? Really? And the, from 1992 to 19... We are, we are trying to digitalize the paper backwards. And right now, I believe we have 1992 forward. But all we um, can store is the front pages. So it all goes to microfilm. I, I'm, I, I have to just note what something you just said that your publisher, poor guy, trying to make ends meet on a, what, 30% operating margin that most businesses in this world would kill for. Mm -hmm. And but the reality... That if, that if, but if the shareholders aren't willing to make a little investment now and they're just going to milk the cow to death, I don't know what, I don't know what the conversation but can that, be. Yeah, but that's, that's... Who do we have that conversation with? Um, the, the stockholders don't care whether we're making newspapers or shoelaces. When they go to pay the college tuition for their children, they can't go and say, gee, I'm really sorry, but um, they tried really hard at the newspaper, but the stock dropped. We have, the reality is, is that the analysts believe that we aren't um, moving fast enough into the new world, or we're not making enough money, or, we're, or at some point in the future we're going to go down. So all of our stocks have dropped by about 50%. So what that means is there's increased pressure on us. Not, it's not the margin. It's the year-over-year -year increase. When you are operating at a 30% margin in an economy, a service economy, it's flopping around. It's very hard to make 1% more next year. That's our final big problem. Here. We have to move on. But that's okay. I'll, I'll no, no, final comment. If you well, I, I, I'm just... I, I just kind of flabbergasted that today's paper is microfilm tomorrow. Isn't it in digital form today in any way, or is it? We don't we don't save it because we don't but have it, room. It, it, you don't have the room on, on, on a hard drive. 
One of the CMS graduate students should have a conversation with Ellen after the after the meeting. Yeah, go for it. Listen, folks, we have we have less than 15 minutes left. Let's imagine we're now in what my friend Henry Jenkins calls the lightning round. Even more concise and to the point, both panelists and questioners. Newspaper reporter who's on sabbatical for the year to get a master's, so I care very deeply about the future of my profession. So thank you for convening this conversation, and I'm curious what your thought is on this new phenomenon of regional and local mid-sized papers focusing on hyper-local news, um, sending journalists into cover at the neighborhood levels, maybe at the expense of some some broader journalism news coverage. Is that a way, is this a formula to, to save newspapers, or do you see danger here? Just what your thoughts are on that phenomenon. I wish I knew more about it, so I'm going to pass. I mean, we, you know, we only publish uh, our, our, our so-called zoned editions uh, uh, twice a week. And uh, newspaper zoning, as everyone at this table, I don't know, it, it seemed like a good idea at the time. It, does, it seems like a less good idea to me now. I love local, I'm older, curiously, the older you get, the more I love local news, you know, you want to read about the people who are teaching your kids, mm -hmm. you know, the jerks in the sewer department. But um, mm -hmm. I, I wish I knew more about what you're talking yeah. about. The, um, the, your, your question goes back to the statement I made earlier about giving people what they want and what they need. And people who live on the outer lying areas of large metropolitan newspapers, they often want what you're talking about, chicken supper news. It's very expensive for large metropolitan newspapers to produce that and to cover the um, city that is the hub of their market. Um, and we have been uh, not very um, creative in figuring out how to do that as an industry. Um, the truth is, is that these weekly newspapers out in Newton and uh, other places are eating the lunch of the metropolitan newspapers. And as journalists, we turn up our nose at that kind of news. Uh, what is happening in my shop, and, and I'm sure Dan can talk uh, at length about this, is that we are increasingly using the web and what we call community pages to provide that um, citizen-generated information, uh, which um, then allows the journalists to concentrate on um, uh, uh, issues that people who have day jobs might not want to contribute um, information about. Does that help you? But, so you have a division of labor there where you're relying on citizen journalists to provide the hyper-local news rather than your professional reporters um, to moderate that conversation, maybe yeah, to yeah, gather the yes news and, in the neighborhood. Yeah, yes and no. Uh, we have a steady diet of uh, hyper-local news coming from interested organizations, and then we have uh, groups of people that, are, um, that, are, um, that do highlights um, that are generated by journalists. There's a very interesting uh, new program in um, Gannett. Um, Fort Myers, I believe, started it um, called, um, they call these young uh, people that work for them, um, uh, oh, damn. Um, they're mobile journalists. 
and I try, they, have a fun, they have a cute little name for them. Anyways, these are, are people, they've got, I believe, four to six of them in the Fort Myers area. They get up in the morning, they take their laptops. I think they're called beat reporters. No, they're, 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 uh, they're called mobile journalists, and they, uh, mojos, they call them mojos. And they go out and they go to a location and they just start reporting on what's happening in everyday people's lives. For example, um, they're at a, um, a, uh, a church dinner. Um, they're at a traffic accident. And then they blog about it and um, sometimes they will then reverse publish a story back into the paper. Um, uh, my criticism of this is, is this journalism is a verifiable information. Um, but, you know, there's lots of really cool, interesting, hyper-local information gathering going on out there that I think is uh, possibly the future of our um, business. Thank you. Yeah, there's tons and tons of stuff like this going on. Very little is being sponsored or encouraged by traditional media. Um, but, uh, and I, I have to say, I have a horse in this particular race because I sold what I was doing last year to one of the hyper-local companies that's trying to do this um, with or without newspapers. So it's, uh, I, obviously I hope it works. But my, my position on it would be that, is it better to have something in the way of news, even if it's reported by people who have not been vetted as journalists, uh, and uh, some of whom will occasionally make it up, or is it better to have nothing? I think better to have something with some uh, uh, level of training going on, some level of helping people understand the principles. And for, again, I think the traditional media, this is going to be part of the uh, formula that helps uh, keep it going over time to make clear which is which, which is the stuff you've done yourself and which is the stuff you haven't, yeah, but point. to uh, basically go for everything you can get and try again to be that uh, convener of that community conversation that will include people talking with each other, not you just to them. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Um, my name is Diana. I'm an Emerson student. I'm studying journalism, and I was just interested in hearing what you each think journalism programs should be teaching students. Who what wants kind that of skills? One? Avoid the passive voice. Uh, <laughs> Good quotes up high. You know, I, I, uh, I do have a master's in journalism from the University of Wisconsin, which um, uh, they tell me is the best uh, journalism graduate um, program in the country. I'm sure people here would argue. Um, I didn't really learn anything about journalism in journalism school. Um, I learned it um, on the job with um, very... Um, uh, generous mentors and uh, who and very generous bosses who let me make lots of mistakes as I was going along. I don't know how you well, guys feel about that. Uh, Alex, your I, curriculum in five seconds for journalism. I think the best journalism schools uh, do a great liberal arts education uh, that that helps people uh, come out of it willing to be willing to challenge. Uh, assumptions, willing to ask good questions, with, with absolute curiosity about things they're finding. Anyone can be taught to write a lead. Um, not everyone, and, and to have some sense of what ethics are in the, in the business, what the law is like in the business. And then uh, I would add the thing that I'm doing all the time, which is to uh, be <coughs> uh, 
uh, anxious to just to be hankering to have a, a conversation with the the former audience and a curriculum that does that would be pretty cool. I'm teaching this fall and it's really fun. Alex, I don't know much about the subject. No, I, I uh, sorry, pass. Did you go to journalism school? You have no curriculum for no, it. No, since you ask, I mean, what's weird is I did. It says here I worked for Newsweek and Businessweek, and I did. But when I came to the Boston Globe, it was mind blowing to work for a daily newspaper. It was mind blowing. I mean, it was really like the real world. Like people actually read what you wrote. And it landed on their doorstep, and it, you, you really had to be coherent, and you really had to be right, you know. And um, da daily newspaper experience, which I suspect will always be different from the, the immediacy of, of digital news, it is um, it was amazing to have to learn journalism at like age 32 or something. But I, I kind of apologize because I don't know much about journalism schools. I mean, just get a job at the Cape Cod Times, you know. And believe me, within two weeks, you'll know almost everything there is to know. Nolan. May I make a brief uh, course. announcement? On October 13th and 14th, the Shorenstein Center for Press, Politics, and Public Policy of the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University will be celebrating its 20th anniversary. And they will be having a two-day conference, which is open to the public, dealing with the same issues, the future of media, the future of newspapers, uh, the future of news, and New Media and Democracy. Um, currently, I teach a course at the Kennedy School called New Media and Democracy. Um, my questions, uh, I'm a pretty good listener, and I didn't hear a uh, direct answer to the core question under discussion is whether uh, newspapers will survive. And, and it seems to me the answer is either yes or no, or some will and some won't. Uh, let's assume that newspapers don't survive. Uh, what, what will be the harm to the public? Uh, how do we measure that harm? Um, what will be the harm to the quality our, of our democracy? Will citizens actually be less informed? Uh, and, and I point this out in the context that since 1992, when uh, the federal government began to measure, somewhere around 47% of the adult population has difficulty reading. They read at the levels one and two, the two lowest levels, which is about fifth grade. And over the, in the last test, uh, a national report was published in December uh, 2005. No improvement. Um, let's assume that newspapers survive now. Um, what will they look like? Not just in the um, unlimited future, but say five years or ten years. Uh, what qualities must they have in order to survive? Uh, and lastly, I have um, an observation about time select uh, by putting quality opinion behind a uh, paywall. It seems to me that uh, uh, columnists like Frank Rich and others, particularly at the New York Times, do what they do not just to make the money, but for the ability to reach an audience so that they can persuade and influence that audience with their opinions and their ideas. And by putting them behind a paywall, uh, you limit the size of the audience and you limit the, uh, the, um, the quality of that audience in, in terms of uh, diversity. There's a class bias in that, in that people who cannot afford the service won't get it, so that has a political consequence. There's already a class bias in the free stuff that's on the web yep. and in the newspaper in general, which is not aimed at the bottom three-fifths of the, of the demographics in our society at all. It's aimed at the top two-fifths and moving toward the top one-fifth. Uh, my former editor and great friend uh, Tom Stites, who gave a talk on this at a recent conference, uh, 
uh, absolutely nailed it. And so the survival of newspapers, much, and I, which I want, won't do a damn thing for the bottom three-fifths of the demographic reach in our country because they're being ignored anyway right now. Well, but the, so is the Internet. No, that's we not, call, I don't agree with that. the digital divide, and I was just before I came here reading about how um, the um, inability of poor families to um, afford the technology is affecting the, their use of uh, the knowledge that's available. I, I take for granted that the, uh, the technological progress will make this gear cheap enough what I can't do, and, and that that's going to be a very affordable thing. What we can't, what I can't do anything about, is the fact that we don't educate kids in this country, uh, which is a much deeper question yeah. and one that you're really getting at. That we, uh, but the the traditional media are simply not interested, at least newspapers, in uh, anyone particularly below that, because their advertisers aren't interested in anyone below that top two fifths. That's that's a scary thing. Though I think it would be vastly more tragic if newspapers, or at least what they do, were to disappear, uh, and, and which I don't think will happen. This is also a reminder of uh, how the questions about media literacy can be a, a distraction, because there's a most fundamental literacy of all, an old-fashioned literacy, the capacity to read and understand the language, which is fundamental whether you use newspapers or the Internet. And uh, uh, that old, uh, that oldest technology of language itself is something that we obviously need to nurture much more than we're doing. Over here. I just oh, wanted uh, to answer the last questioner with um, the answer that, um, you know, your question begs, um, another question was is, what is a newspaper um, if we're asking what harm will there be if it goes away? And the one point that I keep talking about is um, we are a broad-based medium and we create a, communication, a community conversation that I think is very beneficial, at least in our community. And I think that is the harm that will go away if newspapers go away and if the media that um, succeeds it, that you people will be in charge of, doesn't understand that basic value of our um, self-governance. This is the final question or comment. Uh, my name is Fred Clark. I just started a middle school journalism program last week. I have to design the curriculum day by day. It's called making it up as you go along because there is no middle school journalism curriculum. But what I teach, the, what I'm hoping to teach the kids is that instead of getting Nikes for Christmas, they all invest a you know, computer and an internet connection if they don't have it because only about 34 uh, 40% of uh, my town's households have that. And uh, I, I want to tell them, and I will tell them every day, that if they want to get on in life, if they want to do better than uh, they've been previously doing, and so on and so forth, that's what they need. And they don't need that pair of Nikes. They don't need this and that, but that computer game necessarily. But that's what they really need to get for Christmas. So, because it's shopping season now, more or less. And so that's the advice I'm giving them, because it's so critical. Thanks for uh, all the information this evening. I'd like to thank the audience and thank the panel.